HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring food for the eyes, how the art and culinary worlds collide. It's incredibly elaborate. It's a feast for the eyes, a banquet dinner with garnished ham, turkey, and an array of accompaniments. We shot uh, baguettes with like paint dripping off of them with the blue, white, and red from the French flag. Oh, what did the student tell me? They said, the camera eats first. And it's so true. It's so true. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief, with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Conforto. Hi, Bobby. Hi, Zara, my daughter. How are you doing, Bobby, my mother? Ah, I'm good. I'm good. I just feel so rich and full of um, pizza. People and pizza. <laughs> so we have a really great show for you today. Uh, we are jo- joined by Donna Orbach, um, who joins the show to talk about the loss of her son, and her experience with grief and you know donna is a wonderful cook and a wonderful woman and she was so generous with her time and her honesty and her vulnerability and coming to join us today so we're really 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 deeply humbled and uh thankful that she came on the show yes yes (laughs) i I just wanted to say i I feel like we're going to send this episode out to I've worked with bereaved parents for so many years of my career, and um, my mom was a bereaved parent, and I just feel such a deep honoring and regard and respect, and I felt like sitting with Donna is going to help, you know, all of those bereaved parents out there, sending our love to you. Big time. Um, So thank you, Donna, and we hope you enjoy our conversation with Donna Orbach. Thanks. Hi, Donna. Hi, Bobby. Hi, Zara. Hi, Donna. <laughs> so we're here today with Donna Orbach. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? I, I get a little bit nervous. Even when I know exactly how to pronounce something, I still get that little bit of like anxiety. I don't know what it is. It's like a performance anxiety around last names. Um, we're here with Donna Orbach. And Donna, you came to visit us today all the way from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I did. Born and raised? I was born and raised, but I escaped for many years and got sucked back in. Oh, wow. Where did you escape to? Um, Israel, Japan, Turkey, and, um, and a couple of years in Connecticut, oh, Connecticut wow. College. But, Amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. so interesting. So you're really a world traveler and you're a lover of food as we yes, know. Mm-hmm. So how did that all play in? Did you love food before you traveled or did you kind of get to love it more I, through I traveling? I think I was, I think I was always a, a cook. Um, I've been kind of unearthing, um, memories recently, and uh, one of the things that I really remember is that uh, my mother always had me cook, even when I was a little girl, when she would ask me to make cookies for the family or mm. if she was having a party, and everybody always came over my house and ate. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So what was life like growing up with your family? 
aside from like the cooking did oh. dad cook was oh god mama no. cook only okay my mother my mother um uh my favorite cooking story about my mother is that she once took a cooking class and they learned to make uh, veal piccata and so we had veal piccata uh almost every day for like a <laughs> month that was what she knew how to make uh, that's amazing now she was we were not no, no fresh vegetables. My mother still prefers green beans from the can. Um, mm. She just thinks they taste better. Uh, a and, lot of people know. do, actually. I've met a lot of people. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because it speaks to the thing about, like, I'm a chef, and I think people naturally assume, and Bobby, you know, you can probably relate to this, too, as formerly being a chef and being a great cook. And Donna, you too, as a cook. It doesn't matter, I don't think, if something is, quote, good. There is no actual good and bad in food. It really is just about what you love. And I think nostalgia is 75% about whether food is good or not. I think that's probably true. And I really appreciated that. I, I, I heard that in other things that you said listening to the podcast that I, I think that we, we have a stage of life where we're real purists. Mm. And, and then eventually it's just like, Okay, so I'm opening a can of Chef Boyardee. Yeah. And you know what? It tastes good. Exactly. And, but, but I don't actually think Chef Boyardee tastes good. Agreed, but, but I know what you mean. Yes. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, it, it scratches an itch. Bobby, do you have anything that you love that is the equivalent of green beans from a can that like speaks to you in that way? I can't think of it offhand, but I certainly do. I'm not afraid to have secret... Um, Things that I love to eat. Yeah, I kind of remember you loving, and I (laughs) still know this about you. No, it's fine. I'm gonna I'm gonna out you right now on the podcast. Uh, Cranberry sauce from a can, which I love too. I still think you. Yeah, people who love cranberry sauce. If you, yeah, yeah, it's it's the staple. That is true, and I love Hellman's mayonnaise. Oh yes, of course, and ketchup. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. So we've already uncovered a couple of things (laughs) we all share in common. So now that now that our boundaries have been broken down a little bit. so what's your current family structure kind of like now? Uh, well, um, the way I, I usually say it is um, I have a husband mm-hmm. and I have two children. Uh, my youngest son is 23 and my oldest son would be almost 28 had he not died when he was 20. Mm-hmm. Do you... So. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that experience? Um, Ruben was uh, sort of in perfect health. I just showed you guys some pictures mm-hmm. of him. I mean, he had climbed, a, he was studying abroad in Switzerland, uh, in Geneva at the time, and he had just climbed a mountain the day mm-hmm. before and, like, mm-hmm. helped carry some people up that... Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't quite make it, uh, so there was nothing wrong with him. And uh, I got a phone call that from his his I guess homestay mother. He was living with a a family in Geneva, uh, saying Reuben is bad. Reuben is very very bad. Come, mm. come right away. And she didn't speak English. That was all she said. Um, so we flew to Geneva and, uh, we didn't, we didn't know what, what had happened. Um, I was able to speak to a friend of his who, um, his homestay mother had called in to, to be with him. And it seemed like from his description of, of what happened, that maybe he'd had a stroke. Um, But we didn't know. We just headed for the airport. And right before we we got on the plane, um, we got a phone call from a a doctor in Geneva who said that Ruben was still alive, but uh, he'd survived the first uh, two surgeries, but they had to go back in and operate again and he didn't know whether Reuben would survive the third surgery and I said you don't know Reuben he'll he'll survive mm. and he said you you need to be prepared even if he survives he's never the boy you knew is gone and um, 
I said, you don't know Reuben. He'll, he'll come back. And I gave him my sister's phone number to let her know while we were in the air if he had survived the, the next surgery. And he, he did survive that. And when the doctor called my sister, he said, you have to prepare your, your sister that, that Reuben will never, he's gone. The boy she knew is gone. And Sherry said, you don't know Reuben. And he said, yeah, that's what she said, mm. but it's not going to be like that. So Reuben, we got to Geneva, and um, Reuben remained in a coma for 13 days. And then, and then he died. Oh. Hmm. So, surrounded. Mm-hmm. Oh, Donna. Yeah. Hmm. So. That's an, a really mm. incredibly... It's tragic and sad story, and I'm so. And it was it wasn't um, it wasn't a stroke. It was something called an AVM, an, an arteriovenous malformation, that apparently had. It was a congenital birth defect that we had no way of knowing about mm. until he had a killer headache. Awesome. Thank. I just want to first off start by thanking you for, mm. you know, being here and being so vulnerable and open to be able to share something that is that deeply painful and personal and hard, I'm sure, to access and talk about with people who you've just met and publicly on air. And I think that the value of what we're trying to do here is that, I, I tell me what you think, but I think that pain of this magnitude can feel so isolating and scary and sad and for people who are just experiencing it or have experienced it years ago I my hope would be that mm. through hearing the shared experience you know sharing one's experience and you know I think a lot of times people ask in face of such incredible insurmountable pain and tragedy how do you get through it you know how I could never do that and it's so it seems so daunting to people so I guess I this is a two-parter. One at first is just to thank you. Yes. And the second is to ask you in the stages, in the time following this, in the from day one till presently, like if we could maybe start at the beginning, how is that how does that process begin? Donna, when did this happen? What year? This was in 2012. Mm-hmm. It was September of 2012. Mm-hmm. He'd been in Geneva for 3 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the date so that we hold it in? So he actually, um, it was September 11th when we got the phone call, Mm. and he died on September 24th Mm. uh, and was buried on September 28th, and Mm. all the Jewish holidays Mm -hmm. were in there. And uh, while we're not religious, um, we always celebrated the Jewish holidays, and and they were quite meaningful. I, I, I used to like to to enjoy them for their their meaningfulness mm-hmm. as well as for the foods um, the family get-togethers um, so uh, the thing about losing a child is that when you hear people you know, myself included anytime I'd ever heard of somebody who lost a child I said well, I would never survive that mm. and oddly with Reuben uh, I used to tell him all the time, like before he would get in the car to drive someplace, I'd say, okay, so what's the number one rule? And he'd say, don't die. I'd say, that's mm-hmm. right, and why not? Mm-hmm. He said, because you would never survive, because it would kill everybody. I said, absolutely, mm-hmm. don't die. And I don't know why. I, I had those sorts of conversations with him mm-hmm. regularly that I would never survive. And so all I can tell you, and I talked to Bobby about this um, my my best illustration is that for those 13 days that Reuben was in a coma and we were by his bedside I, I couldn't eat I mean there were days where we would we, they would force us to leave the hospital and go get something to eat and I remember days where my husband would would sort of force feed me a spoonful of yogurt and yeah. say just just you have to you have mm-hmm. to and I lost more than 10 pounds um, in those days. I couldn't eat. And as soon as he died, I was ravenous. Mm. I, and I felt so betrayed by, by my body because there's nothing that you, you just want to die. There, mm. you, there's, there's no reason. Like, 
if you if you could die, you know, when people say, "Oh, I could never survive that," well, it's it's not our choice. Yeah. Like, who wants to survive it? But but clearly, it you do, and and I I was I was ravenous. I, Your body called you back. I guess it was just it was a sign that you you're here. It's very interesting when you say that you feel like it's your body betraying you because mm-hmm. you are you know there's something about the losing your appetite or losing your zeal or losing your enthusiasm. It makes sense. You're in mm-hmm. mourning and you're in grieving, and it's like, of course, your your pleasure center shut down and, and it, in shock and in shock, and it mm-hmm. does. I can totally relate to that feeling uh, just from different experiences that I've had with grief. That it does feel like well. Like when the hunger kicks back in, like, well, how dare you? I'm not supposed to be hungry mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. This like joyous. So how did you, when you became ravenous, how did, A, what was the, what were you ravenous for? If you remember? Um, we were, we, hmm. you know, Ruben's death was much like him. It was very complicated and hmm. we couldn't get his body out of hmm. Switzerland and, and it was Yom Kippur, so there was then we couldn't travel because if there was good, it was all sorts of yeah. complications. I mean, um, I mean, my husband had to leave the the hospital immediately following his son's death to to go meet with sort of the chief rabbinate to make sure that they would get Reuben's body and. Um, so I don't I don't remember exactly. Um, I know that that we went to a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure it was pasta because that would be what I would eat. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of my comfort food. Uh, mm-hmm. But then, of course, I was very sick. I got like mm-hmm. you know diarrhea and throwing up yeah. for the rest of the day after yeah. I mm-hmm. I yeah. ate, which made more sense to me of than being hungry. I imagine with the trauma that your body was so tight. And so tense. How do you digest, you know, when you feel that way? But yet some something inside was wanting you yes, to eat. Yes, it was just, yeah. yeah even though your body like wasn't a, a prepared deep, for a it. A deep, deep hunger that, yeah. that um, was just life was reasserting itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so powerful. Bobby, I'm curious about the psychology behind that, behind becoming ravenous after you know, at a tipping point of a traumatic experience, is there something in psychology that we could use to describe that? Well, it's really a bit more about post-traumatic stress, really, which is what you were going through, and probably for some period of time. Still some days. Yeah. And what happens with post-traumatic stress is that the body prepares itself for fight or flight or freeze, and it shuts down, the organs actually shut down in order to prepare yourself to either fight, flight, or freeze. Right. So the stomach kind of shuts down. The leg muscles get energy, the arms get energy, but everything else kind of shuts down. Mm. So that's, and I think the ravenous part, mm. I think you described it best. I think it sounds more of a, 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 a spiritual thing of, like you said, just your body saying, no, we're going to live. Mm. No matter what you yeah, want. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the biology really kicking in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm still really, I'm really it's intrigued okay. by the, whole dynamic about you feeling when you're saying you're feeling as though your your body's betraying you with the hunger and so how long how long did that feeling in you last like until where when was the point where you felt okay with being hungry being ravenous cooking enjoying food again specifically was it a long journey did it feel like it came back quickly uh, i'm trying to think uh, uh the need to to throw myself into into the familiar role of 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 mother in the kitchen mm-hmm. um, came back pretty quickly. I think that i've I've been doing a lot of thinking about this since I knew that I was going to be doing the show. Um, after after he died and we finally got back here and had the funeral and the, the shiva and people made food for us thinking that you know, that's what you have to do because probably I, I don't know what they imagined that I was just laying in bed and could you're disabled and, and disabled and can't like, cook or don't right work. and that my yeah. family's going to starve if they don't if if they don't survive if they don't provide for us and every right. day there'd be like a box dropped off or people would bring things and 
And it was such a chore to get through other people's food. Mm. We would look at each other and just, we just wanted it to stop coming mm. yeah. because we just wanted my food. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I needed to get back in, in the kitchen. And, and that was how I nurtured my family. Uh, right. when I, even when I worked, uh, we owned a furniture store. Sometimes I would come home from work at 10 o'clock at night, and I would cook dinner. And yeah. my kids were younger, <laughs> and we would eat dinner at 11 o'clock and, and sit around the table together because that was what, that was what centered me, it like grounded me to my, to my <laughs> home was cooking. And, <laughs> and so cooking came back very quickly. It was very important. I, I, yeah. I felt I, I didn't leave the house for a long, long, long time, and other mm-hmm. people did grocery shopping for me. Um, but I cooked every day, mm-hmm. and it, it. I thought I was fine. I thought if I can provide dinner for my husband and son and my parents would come over every day and friends would come yeah. over because I wouldn't go out. And I I just cooked away. This was your day. little bit of normalcy. I think it was normalcy and perhaps control. I'm not yes. I'm not sure. I'm wondering if that was I've well, been accused of those that. of us that love to cook <laughs> those of us that love to cook know that our kitchen is our control. Yeah. And, right. and that makes perfect method sense. And and, yeah. and taking your brain offline yeah. a little bit and doing the thing. I mean, I think most people have something that they can do mm-hmm. where they feel purposeful and soothed and useful. And I think people find that in different hobbies. And you're right, people who cook, there is a okay. catharsis and there is just in, in washing the vegetable, mm-hmm. in hearing the sizzle, like it's just normalcy. I call it our meditation. Our meditation is losing your mind. Yeah. So we each have different ways to lose our mind. That's very... And we so desperately need it because... I imagine that any trauma that your mind was so active at times, like what's happened, what's going on, what's, you know, it must have been going, going, going. And I imagine that in the kitchen it was a time to... It, it was more, it, it, something else took over. It was yes. more meditative. It yes. was someplace else. And I just, it's weird how things come together, but I just, I'm sure you know this person, Bessel van der Kolk. Mm-hmm, of course. And all of a sudden this week, like three different people have sent me different things about him like even an interview that was from 2013 and I've studied with him several times yeah and so what he says is action is a way of recovery yes beautiful and that makes perfect sense to me that cooking was was an action that I yes. that I took and yeah were there any ways after this loss that you felt that inaction felt powerful or important to you at the time what do you mean? Well, I mean that sometimes the inaction of staying in bed too long or mm-hmm. uh, not showering or, you know, not getting up off the floor, the inaction, not go, choosing to go to yoga class, choosing not to cook, did that? Uh, did those moments feel powerful and, and in their own way empowering to you at all? So I, I totally allowed myself to grieve. Mm. I... I never shied away from it for one second. I, I was completely absorbed in, in allowing it to be what was happening to me. And when people would say, you know, then people get worried. You know, they think, oh, she should be better by now, or shouldn't yeah. she be out? And uh, don't you think you should take some antidepressants? Mm. And I said, no. <laughs> I said, if there's ever been a mm. reason to be depressed, Mm-hmm. It's when your child dies. Of like, course. Mm-hmm. Like, no, I, I didn't want to numb that mm-hmm. at in, in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. It was really, it was, I was with Reuben. I yes. just wanted to be with Reuben. So my inaction mm-hmm. was um, was in, in allowing myself, if all I did that day was look at pictures of, of him, um, that was fine with me. I didn't expect a lot from myself. Yeah. I really allowed that that this is huge and mm-hmm. and it's always it'll take the time it takes. Yeah. So did you find that there the people in your life, your husband, your son, your parents, your friends, did you did they want you to be somewhere different? Did you feel like they 
like you said, they were worried about you, that they felt like something else should be. Well, of course, they were all grieving, too, they but in their were, own way. They were grieving, too, and I think that um, a mom is different. And, and, and my role, I, I had a living child, and so that was the only thing I cared about was making sure that he was okay. That was the only thing that got me up. And I, I recently um, heard a man interviewed who, who wrote a book after losing his child, and somebody said that, um, that the parents, now that they're a parent, they went back to their parent and said, well, how did you, how did you survive? And they said, well, I, I had you, and so that's why I went on. And then they went on to discuss how that was a horrible thing, like what a terrible burden for this kid. And I've never not told Adam that he's the only reason that, that I'm still alive. And so I told him after I heard that interview, I said, oh, my God. I said, so has this been terrible for you? He said, duh. Like, what do you think? And I said, well, don't worry. You're not the only reason I'm still alive yeah. anymore. I said, you, you did get me through. Yes. Like, that was... You were my reason to to wake up and yeah. And sometimes I would go back to sleep, you yeah. know, when yes. he went off to school. And sure. how um, old was he then? Um, he was sixteen. Mm-hmm. He turned sixteen when when Ruben was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. But I didn't quite answer your question. So just the idea that I was, uh, yes, everybody wanted me. When is Donna coming back? Mm-hmm. When's she gonna come back? And you know what? She never really did. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, um, never the same. But, and, and, and being, people would walk up to Adam and, and to Albert, never say, how are you? Mm-hmm. Albert's my husband. They, yes, right. How's Donna? How's your mom? Right. And, which is its own problem because mm-hmm. they're, they're grieving too. Yeah. But, um, so what do you think you said before that being a mom is just different? So what about being a mom is different? A grieving mom is different than a grieving dad or a grieving brother. I I, I don't know if I if I can answer that. I mean, I think that uh, I think Albert, my husband. Uh, I think men men need action, like yes, not absolutely. not action necessarily as therapy, but. No. Going back to need, work, like what he needed, so, so maybe I needed to cook. He needed to provide to continue to mm-hmm. provide for his family, and the most important thing for him was that I was okay mm-hmm. because I was the linchpin. Mm-hmm. And right. I mean, in, in a horrible story, like when when Reuben was laying there, and they said. Um, Albert said, I, I wish it was me. Mm. And I oh. said, yeah, I do too. I wish it was you. Mm-hmm. I said, but not me. I don't yes. actually wish it was me because yeah. I have to take care of Adam. Like somebody right. has to, t- and, mm-hmm. and it has to be me. Yeah. Um, and he said, yeah, I agree. So, so it's, it's terrible, interesting. It? No, no. It's, it's really not terrible no. because it actually no. is very honest and it yeah. speaks to the dynamics of what it is to be a family, mm-hmm. you know? And I think it's very true and it's important to talk about stuff like that because people don't, admit that kind of stuff enough you know when you're Mm -hmm. in a family you're in this very complicated relationship uh where you're all it is all tied together it is dominoes you know and Mm -hmm. and if the quote-unquote wrong person or you know what i mean is taken out it it creates this incredible amount Mm -hmm. of complexity and uh it makes sense to our brains that the father of a family dies first because Mm -hmm. they're the oldest male Right? Usually, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. And so... And the untimeliness of a child dying is profound. Right. It's so untimely. I think that it's important also to just, for everybody to embrace how not terrible that is to say. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, I so appreciate you saying that. <laughs> I... And, 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 <laughs> I, I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's really, I think it's really incredible. And I just want to go back just a little bit to when we were talking about um, feeling like you know, embracing some of those moments of staying down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody asked me the other day about kind of a similar question. Um, what? How do you bounce back from things when really awful, terrible things happen and you're in an incredible amount of pain and grief? And I actually thought to myself for a second that I think 
the most important part of being able to in any way quote bounce back but to be able to resurface as a some mm-hmm. semblance of your former self is to stay down you know I, I agree because there's so much to see and learn mm-hmm. when you're down absolutely you know so absolutely yeah and I think it's such an instinct for people to think that if well if I'm ever going to get back I need to get back well it's it's it, in my mind it, it's running away yeah like that that was really how I felt that I was not afraid of the depths of my pain. Yeah. Other people were afraid right. of my pain, but I was not. I, I felt like I felt like Ruben deserved it. I yeah. deserved it. Our relationship um, that I it was fine for me. Yeah. So I would want to ask you, not where did you get the strength to go on, but where did you get, if you can access that anywhere in your upbringing or maybe from a parent or an experience, where did you get the, where did you get the strength to be in it, to be in yeah. your grief so authentically? Like, did that come from your family, your mother or father or? I, I have no idea. I would, I, I would say no, that yeah. I, I don't know. I've always been, um, uh, someone who people would shake their heads and say, I don't know where she came from. Like my parents were just like, I don't know where she came from. Um, so no, I don't, I don't, I, my parents are very socially responsible people. Uh, they, they have terrific social skills and, and I have decent social skills, but, um, I mean, for instance, I, I felt very responsible to the people. People were really supportive. And they would say during, you know, the initial morning time, you, you, you don't have to come out of your room. But people would drive from all over the country or fly in, and I said, no. I said, it, it, this is part of the social contract. Like, this is how mm-hmm. you, you, they supported me. Mm-hmm. I acknowledge. I say thank you. I was yeah. so, it's a very weird thing. I don't know if, if you had this, like, to have... The this feeling of the utmost gratitude that you can ever have at the at the worst time, like yeah. just being filled with with gratitude to all these people mm. who were really so loving, yeah. um, and and just wanted to do things. Not that I was not that I was always good. I I. I I was mean sometimes to people who just were trying to do yeah, or say the right okay. thing. Yeah. Um, but so I, I don't know where it came from. I've never been afraid of feeling. Yeah. I've always been really, really honest, and I I also felt a responsibility almost to to the fact that we don't talk about death. Yeah. It's so hidden and. And it's problematic. It's yes, and hugely I, problematic. And I felt very strongly that that okay, here like I just felt like grief. Like when I walked into a room, I thought, oh, here comes grief. Oh, yeah. look, grief just yeah. came. <laughs> here she is. And, yeah, and I, I was okay with that. Yeah, that's that's it's an incredibly empowering place to feel where you're just like, I don't give fuck anymore. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I'm in this experience and I don't really care if it makes you guys uncomfortable because it shouldn't be so uncomfortable for no. everyone. You know what it I mean? It reminds me of the line in Janis Joplin's song, you know, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Yeah. And I guess you're also talking about it. You may have felt that before, but then there was this unlocking of a place where I am free to be who I am. Absolutely. And, and yeah. I often I often say now, you know, thank you, Dad Ruben, because mm-hmm. I I I will not live dishonestly. I yeah. will not. Yeah. So I have a, a thought that I think we probably all share as people who love to cook, that cooking often, more often than not, especially if you're cooking for a family, is an ex- very genuine expression of love. Absolutely. And it's a way to show people you love them. And in that exchange, you feel good because you're doing something nurturing and loving and you can feel good about your contribution and they appreciate it. It's this very rewarding exchange. And after you lose somebody who you've given that attention and love to, I feel like one of the hardest things that I've personally experienced in grief post, you know, after experiencing it and especially with cooking is this thing that I've like dubbed like homeless love. Like, where does this, where does it go? Mm -hmm. You know? No, I, absolutely. So where does it go? Where Where did it go for you in this experience? Well, it's, especially with cooking. It's, it's a, well, especially with cooking, um, 
I think that if, if people wanted to to maintain sort of their, their friendships with me and to they had to come to me. I wasn't mm-hmm. going anywhere really. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question of mm-hmm. of where does the love come? I mean, it's something that I I Bobby and I talked about this a little bit when pre-interview interview whatever yeah. that you know I I don't know a single person who's lost a child that doesn't immediately want to start a foundation to put right. the love like well where's where where am I going to put all this love I've got to put it into something good um but and so we we did do that and mm-hmm. there's a scholarship in in Ruben's name at Colorado College for deep need um and first generation students mm-hmm. uh, that's wonderful but but the question of of where does the love go? I, I don't know. Yeah. I, so I think that in cooking, I I just I gave it back to whoever came, and and I also I love the conversations that happen, mm-hmm. like the the rawness of like the the kitchen around the the table. That yeah. and so people would be with you while you were cooking. I'm the kind of cook who uh, doesn't generally know what we're having for dinner until people get there and (laughs) and then I open a bottle of wine or two and everybody just you know is there and we're we're talking while I you know pull things out of the refrigerator is your kitchen like that is it 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 conducive. I've to made that. it like that. Yeah. I don't know whether yeah. it was. It was like I, right. I was thinking. I really have a counter. It's not an island, mm-hmm. but I utilize it like an island, and people stay on that side <laughs> right. while I'm, you know, chopping and, and mm-hmm. talking, mm-hmm. and everybody's talking. And occasionally, I'll let people help. I'll pull out more cutting boards. If I had a bigger kitchen with mm-hmm. a, I would have multiple people cooking. But right. yeah, it does only really work with. And we do have to be in control of our kitchen. Yes, of course. Um, so. Uh, yeah, so I, I I never knew what I was going to make. So yeah. people, yeah, I liked that. I like that. Mm. That spontaneity, which is very right yeah. brain. So you're saying that you know that's the right brain, where we're creative, huh? And where things are spontaneous, and the left brain is where we organize and detail and control in a way. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it was very helpful to get into your right brain, and it it is. I mean, the, you know, drawing is right brain, and gardening is right brain, and gardening's know, another yeah. big thing that ah. I. I I oh, fell yeah? into. Mm-hmm. Tell wow. us more about that. About, let's see, what what year might that have been? Maybe in 2015. I I um. I just came home one day and I really got down on my hands and knees and I ripped up my entire front yard of grass wow. with my fingers, and spent the next two years just gardening like like a banshee although I don't even know what a banshee is a wild woman it's an expert gardener (laughs) but I and and I just created pathways and um Mm. you know planted uh tons of perennials and and some annuals um and just created this remarkable garden without any any grass that's Uh, amazing and I spent a couple of years in there and and I can say that 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 was genuinely Therapeutic. Yeah. Like I, I understood while I was doing it. Well, it's like a tangible therapy yes, too, right? Yes. Like the image of you putting your hands oh, yeah. and ripping up the grass oh, I can is feel just it right so now. powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I think that sometimes, you know, to process what we're feeling actually really digging in there or smashing or whatever that physical Ripping activity things out. is. Yeah, no, was, you yes. come to a time where it just become feels really natural. Well, it, if I could say for a second, this week and a lot of the clients I had, I actually had a a load of bereaved parents this week. Mm, and part of what we were talking about was about the anger. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about you know anger as an emotion that it's hard to give that space because you can feel it, but then if it internalizes, that's not a good thing. It can turn to self-loathing. Mm-hmm. It can turn to depression. It really needs a way to come out. So that concept, if you're digging in the dirt, yeah. it's just like it puts everything in there. It's, it's, it's just cinematic, really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, more Athana. I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Why Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. 
We're honored to work with restaurants including 11 Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. And we're back. Um, Donna, you were mentioning before about um, having, you didn't go to the supermarket for a while. And, you know, I'm I kind still of. still don't. Go. You still don't? Not in my city. Not, I, yeah. I'll go to a Trader Joe's or um, in some other town. We don't have Trader Joe's. I'm, okay. But. Um, the farmer's market? I go to my farmer's market right. that I go to. So, you know, I'm interested in how your routines changed and why. Because also, I've heard, we've heard from a lot of people. Um, We actually just had a wonderful woman in here who wrote an article about uh, women, uh, particularly women, but men too, who are widowed and how going to the supermarket is particularly hard. And I'm wondering for you, if you don't mind sharing, what is, what was so triggering particularly about that experience for you? I think, um, first of all, initially, I just didn't want to leave my house if I didn't have to. Uh, So... I think that a supermarket, the way that we have them in this country, and, and I, actually all over the world now, they're overwhelming. The, yeah. the choice, the lighting, the... I can't even see. I was blinded. Like, even still, I'm, I'm blinded when I go into these big supermarkets, yeah. and and I, I can't tell. Like, I, I can't even get out of one aisle because... I don't know. There's so many choices. It's overstimulating. Yeah, it's overstimulating. So there was, there's that. I couldn't take the stimulation. Mm-hmm. And I, I did not want to see people. I knew. Yeah. That was that was absolutely true. And the truth is, is that I'm, I'm seven and a half, almost seven and a half years. I still don't like to run into people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I, did I, you used to like to run into people? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, some people don't like, you, <laughs> you know, know, I was fine. Right. I, I okay. was fine. Yeah. Um, but I find that, and, and supermarkets are enclosed. Like that's why we have an outdoor mm. farmer's market and I'm fine in the outdoors. Still, I'm fine in the outdoors even, uh, but, but enough space. Yeah. But, and I, I just, I, I, I feel like things closing in on me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in grief, there's, you know, I call it the turtle principle, but it's also cocooning and it's safety. It's creating your circle of safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and But the interesting thing is that we also need space. Because what you're saying in the farmer's market, you also need the space of the air around you. I need fresh air. And I yeah. was telling a story today about my dear friend who's actually been on the show. And in the same year, she lost three brothers her husband, her business, and her dog, who died at the funeral of her husband. And the first thing I did is I took her to the Cliffs of Montauk. And the Cliffs of Montauk, if you've never been there, there is so much space. You just see this spanse of ocean. And all around you, it's it's just space. It was the, I knew she needed space, you know, to hold the feelings, a space Mm -hmm. that was big enough that could Mm -hmm. hold those feelings. And she just screamed into space. So I think we need both when we're grieving. We need the cocoon and the safety, that the control that we create, and then we need a space that's large enough to hold all the feelings that we have. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It, yeah. it does. I, yeah. Uh, because I'm, I'm either nesting or I'm out in nature. Mm-hmm. It's, right. It's mm-hmm. either one or the other. It's. I mean, I could not have come into this restaurant uh, probably... For five years, yeah. I I couldn't yeah. bear noise. I couldn't. Yeah, you know, a very uh, dear person who's a, a bereavement specialist. His name is Ken Druck, and he's in uh, San Diego. He lost a child very tragically in India. So he had a similar experience to you. That he not only was it a sudden loss of his daughter, um, who was about the same age as Ruben, but he couldn't get her out of the country. So there was all of that, very similar to what you said. So he described being a brief parent is walking around with no skin. Yes. So well, that explains ab- absolutely. why powerful. everything would be so hard. I would I used to say the yeah. the, the air it the air hurts. I'm just mm-hmm. it hurts. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it takes a long time and, and I know I think on one show you mentioned the concept of complicated grief, which mm-hmm. I really bridle against because I think grief is what it is. And yeah. it takes the time mm-hmm. it takes. Um, and I, I don't, 
I, I, I probably don't have the concept what it 100% is. right, but, but parts of it, and I went to see the woman who coined the phrase, we went to, because I, I read everything I could. On, was that Therese Rando? Mm. Uh, Teresa Rando? I think so, yes. Mm. Um, she was speaking, and, and the mm. idea of getting back to normal. And I don't believe that you should. Yeah. So I, I, mm-hmm. I think that it's, it, and anytime somebody dies, like if somebody loses a mother or a father mm-hmm. yeah. or anybody, I just, my, my line is be gentle with yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because Loving kindness. Grief has a mind of its own, a life of its own, and it will take you places. Absolutely. And let it. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know. It, going back to what we were talking about before about people just assuming, you know, why isn't she better yet? Or why <laughs> isn't, isn't she, she better? better and like and normal, you mm-hmm. know, like those just don't exist anymore. And I think it's important for people who are listening who haven't experienced such powerful grief and loss in their lives to understand that your friends and family members might just be different. And it's up to us to acclimate to their new mm-hmm. sense of homeostasis and normal, yes. mm-hmm. quote unquote, mm-hmm. and with the understanding that someday you'll need that from somebody else, you know, and that takes the, I think the frustration, the fear, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean? And, and even being like, well, I can't hang out with them anymore. They're like this now, or they're not what they used to be Where's like. Where's the old Donna? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Understanding there's a new Donna mm-hmm. and that someday there'll be a new whatever, you know, the next person who experiences something that's tragic or terrible or a loss of somebody. Um, and I think it just can help to open up the real conversation about what it's like to be grieving and to, you know, I think that we have a tendency to alienate friends and then we become alienated too because we don't feel normal anymore absolutely and i think it's just about understanding that being a person is a is a process Mm -hmm. you don't start and end the same and some people are Mm -hmm. luckier than others and some people's lives go smoother than others and i think you know the luckiest thing that can actually ever happen to us really is that we do change and we do grow with whatever happens to us Mm -hmm. um but i just for anyone listening who Mm -hmm. is like wondering about how to deal with a bereaved person mm-hmm. um i think that just acceptance that that person I think is bearing different. witness i yeah. think i think Beautiful. that you yes. just I, I, that's the most important thing that that my friends mm. um they they just bear witness yeah. they they can very few people can sit mm-hmm. in that sort of pain that's not theirs that mm-hmm. that yes. is just and 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 bear witness to it and just let it be. Yeah. And well, you're doing that yourself. You're bearing witness to yourself, mm-hmm. and that's what you're asking of other people around you. That's what you need from them. It's the very same thing, because yeah. you described you're just letting, giving the space to what you feel, and that's what you need them to do. Yeah. It's very hard for people. You know, you both said something before that, you know, Donna, you had said that you dove down so deep, and then I think Zara, you mentioned about how do you come back to the surface. Well, when you take a journey like that, you are changed in a way, whether you want to call it hell or whatever place you want to call it, the darkest and deepest of caverns. Yeah. You know, there's things to learn there. There's th- You change from that experience, Absolutely. from diving down. And it's not that you get better and it's not that you heal. You had spoken about not liking that word, heal. It, yeah. It's you resurface. That was wonder. I love how you said that, well, Zara, because that's what happens. I you do resurface, but if change. I, if I may, and this is just my opinion, I feel like it instills a slight sense of, uh, like, fearlessness Absolutely. In you, where Absolutely. Where you're like, oh, wow, I've seen some pretty bad shit. I spoke to a, a mom. Um, it's weird. In my little community in Harrisburg, we have... I know so many people who have lost children. Mm. So that's another line that I mm. hate is it's not the natural order of things because mm. who says? Mm. You know, I know so many people. The kids die yeah. every day. It's mm. not what we want. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. what we want to be the natural right. order. But mm. it happens. But I there was one woman who um, who lost her, her daughter very, very suddenly. And she was recovering from a, a, a simple, like, arthroscopic knee surgery, and she got a, mm. um, a, a blood clot, and it, mm. it, it killed her, like, almost instantly with her. She was just about to be let out of the hospital. Her father was sitting there. Nobody could help her. And uh, she was just another woman in the community, not somebody I was, I was friends with, but you, know, you find each other. And I know, like, one day at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning when you're... Sh- I think on Facebook we were messaging or something, and, and she she said that 
she feels like those of us that have lost children, that we are the strongest people, the Absolutely. most courageous people in in the world. That Absolutely. That to survive that is... I, I, she said it better. Mm-hmm. Well, when you talked about fearlessness before, mm-hmm. Stephen Levine, who's... Uh, he, do you know Stephen mm-hmm. Levine? He's a Buddhist. Um, he was a hospice worker for many years. His wife had, uh, had terminal cancer. And he wrote beautiful books, including uh, Meetings at the Edge. Um, But he said that fearlessness is not the absence of fear. It's being able to stand in the face of fear. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if a person who's fearless has no fear. There's plenty of fear. Yeah, Yeah. and it's not fearless. It's just that there's a strength that that you feel. It's not invincible, but but very few things can ever break you like that. Yeah. How has Reuben given you strength? How has Reuben given me strength? Or has Reuben given you strength? Um, so the things that I've, I've come to are that there's, there's really nothing more important than kindness and beauty and love. And I think that... Reuben has really turned sometimes when I see something really beautiful I like to think Reuben turned me mm-hmm. Reuben turned my eyes toward that like it's mm-hmm. because of Reuben that I'm, I'm, I'm really able to see that now um, and I, I I don't I don't know if he if he gave me strength he gave me I like to call them parting gifts that that they're there are things that I, there are ways I am able to be in the world because Reuben, Reuben's death al- allowed it and it feels, it, it almost feels like, like being hungry, like, like it's, it shouldn't be. It's, yeah. it's horrible. It's a horrible thing to say, but, but the truth is, is that, that I've been able to live and, and, and be a more honest version of of Donna. Right. Be truer to what I really believe is important in in life. I mean, I'm working toward it. I'm I'm, but I'm not I'm not going back to. Yeah, yeah you're changed. You're the yeah. new Donna. <laughs> you are. And you know, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I hope the people mm-hmm. that really love me are okay with that too. Yeah. Um, I mean, you just have to be that way. That's who you are. You know, you are this new version of yourself. And it sounds like you're saying that there's a lot of power in that and a lot of beauty. And it's, you know, it's what you've made of it. It's what you've gained from it and what you've taken from this experience. And you, I'm personally in awe of the woman you are to, you know, just meeting you to come and sit in here and be able to speak so candidly and so poised and, and share this with people, you know, and it's, I think it's, it's amazing. Thank you very much. Yeah. I have one more question that I'd like to ask, which we try to ask everyone. Um, if you could give yourself a piece of advice, uh, at the beginning of your journey, uh, in this process and you could tell yourself one thing, uh, what would that be? Huh. I mean, something, something that, she knows now that she didn't know then? If you could just, you know, if we had a time machine and mm-hmm. you could see yourself then and you say, hey, listen, I need you to know this yeah. to get through this, um, if there is something. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I think, as I said, I think I, I lived so honestly... In, in this grief, I think I would tell myself to be gentler with well-meaning people. That sometimes I, I could find myself just being angry. I mean, there were there were things that, like having no skin or or not being able to breathe. I mean, I, re- I remember times when just an exclamation point hurt me so much mm. I couldn't bear to see it. Wow. It was. And, and, hmm. um, and so there, I, I think that while being honest, 
I, I also would try to have more compassion for the people on the other side. I mean, my parents would say to me all the time, you know, they, they don't know what to say to you, Donna. They didn't mean it. They didn't mean it. Because yeah. people say really stupid things. Yeah. And they don't mean it. Totally. And, and yet, I mean, even my dad, like, I know he would call me every day how are you? Yeah. And I would say, stop it. Don't ask me. How How could I be? Yeah. And I'm terrible. <laughs> like, how could I be? And, you know, like the podcast, that terrible thanks for asking. This. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I know it would hurt him so much because, well, first of all, I would feel pressured to feel, to give him an answer. My, my husband would say, just tell him you're, you're okay. Like, yeah. they just need to hear that you're okay. And I'd say, but I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. And um, so I, I, I don't know whether I would be dishonest, but I would give people, I, I would try to have more compassion for people who were, were really trying in, in their own way, who didn't have any idea what to do or what to say. Yeah. And yeah. It must have taken every single every single shred of strength to be there for yourself. It was hard to have anything left over for anybody else. I would say, I'm, I'm, I, I just, you know, everybody would say, oh, you and Albert, you have to take care of Albert. And I said, he's a grown man. He's going to have to take care of himself. Yeah. I, I, I'm doing the best I can, and the only person I have to take care of mm. is, is Adam. Yes, yeah. And yourself. Yeah. One, yeah, and, and myself. One but, last question. Yeah. Um, what were some of the foods that you either cooked or really found to be comforting or, it, you know, really any experience. It could be comforting or something you're just like, ugh, I have no place for this anymore. Just uh, what are the standout food experiences for you in this process, whether they were comforting or things you just couldn't be around anymore? So, um... Besides well, funeral food that people a, brought you. Yeah. Um, I don't know what foods I can't be around anymore. There are foods that that carry memories of Reuben and, you know, that, that make me smile when I'm making them because I think he had gone on a, a, a Greek odyssey, like traveled in the footsteps oh, of wow. Homer with um, Colorado College the summer before he died. And he was so excited when he came home because he learned how to make, uh, I, I don't know what it's called in Greek, in Turkish, it's jajik. It's the it's a, the cucumber or yogurt. Um, tzatziki. Tzatziki. tzatziki, yes. Uh, so he learned to, to make that. Oh, he wow. Like, and that was his dish for yeah. all the people on the boat. <laughs> and he was so proud of himself, and he couldn't wait till he came home and made it for us. And so that's that's uh, one of them. And uh, that every time I'm, I'm making it, I, I think, oh, Ruben. And, uh, and he had met he had met his, his girlfriend before he died at a, a latka making contest at, at school as well. So Aww. when I make latkes, I Aww. I think of of him. But you know, we're 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 a big pasta family. Oh, we, God bless you. What's your too. favorite kind of pasta? Ooh. I I that that's really really hard. I don't know what it's called. It's the one that looks like my hair, like curl, curly. Not no, no, no. The long ones. Oh, like I like Fusilli Bucatini. I like Bucatini, but then there's another one that's. It's like a spaghetti, like a thicker spaghetti, yeah. but it's curly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I know what you're talking about. I yes. can't remember the and, name. And of it we always laughed because that was, you know, it was yeah. like like your hair, like my hair, my curly hair. So what's shape. the sauce on your hair? What kind of sauce? <laughs> do you well, like? that that sauce. I mean, it needs it needs a heavier sauce. It does. Yeah. It needs a heavier sauce, which mm-hmm. I. But but ali olio is my ali. Ali olio, yep. is that I oh, that yeah. right? Is really my comfort. Yeah, that, that's at midnight. I'm I'm okay. just as likely to even after I've eaten a full. Oh, I love you. To, to like get up at one o'clock in the morning <laughs> and say, you know what? Yeah. You know, put up a, bo- a you know plate to or pot to boil and um and yeah. So those are some and chocolate chip cookies. I used oh, to yeah. make chocolate chip cookies for. For Reuben and his friends, I was the party house. So it, mm-hmm. at two a.m., all of his friends would all come <laughs> up and I'd give them the you know grease. Whoever greases it the best gets the first cookie, and, and we would make chocolate chip cookies all night long. It's really sweet. Um, so, 
Donna, it was amazing to talk to you. And mm-hmm. we, you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> and beyond that, we, I would love to sit down and just share a meal with you sometime. Yes, I'm sure I was I thinking share, the same sure thing, we, actually. Bobby and I share yeah. that sentiment. That would, be, that would be lovely. It would be great to... And is there anything that you're working on that you would like us to share to the so I'm, listening I'm, crowd? I'm hoping... Um, I'm working on a memoir, and uh, I never intended to write a memoir, and it embarrasses me, but it's, it's really um, what's coming out, and it's a memoir on survival. Yes. On surviving mm-hmm. that, which, you know, it's survival of a marriage, because everybody says, uh, mm-hmm. oh, you know, they don't, marriages don't last after you lose a kid. Well, I, I, I'm hoping that mm-hmm. we're, we're good, but just yeah. the, the survival of how you survive, yeah. that which you think you never will. Yeah. Well, we know that whoever is listening is going to be deeply moved and moved by your experience and your sharing. Thank so you. I can, we could only imagine that a memoir would be absolutely reach so many people and help so many people. Thank you so much, thank Donna. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you both. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really, it requires such a, it's such a generous mm. act to come and share the story. It's truly generous and it's really deeply appreciated. And it was wonderful to meet you and chat with you. Thank you you so much. Both of you too. Heart opening. (laughs) Well, guys, I hope that you enjoyed our episode with Donna Orbach. Mom, what a wonderful episode, don't you think? Oh, I just, I love her. Yeah, Donna was just (laughs) such a... I love her depth and... She was a really warm person and uh, everyone has such a different presence when, when they're in the studio. And they're all beautiful and incredible, but it just, it's not only is everybody a different person, but the feeling, the, you know, and her story was so traumatic. What happened to her was so sad and so traumatic. And I really was so honored that she gave us her time and was able to come here and per, and tell us all that, her story. And came all the way from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. From Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And, you know, at the end of the show, we try to give some facts about a couple of things that happened in the episode, a little diffuse, if you will, because the subject matter is so intense. Um, so I just wanted to tell you a couple of things about Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, mm. which I hadn't realized is the capital of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm blown away. I thought I would, I thought surely it was Philly. Wouldn't you think it was Philly? I would think so. The original. It, it's not. It's Harrisburg. Um, I'm going to rip this right from the headlines of Wikipedia about Harrisburg quickly. It's the capital city of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in the United States and uh, the county seat of Dauphin County um, with a population of 49,229. It's the 15th largest city in the Commonwealth. It lies on the east bank of the Susquehanna River, Mm. 107 miles west of Philadelphia. Harrisburg is the anchor of the Susquehanna Valley metropolitan area. Uh, making it the fourth most populous uh, area in Pennsylvania and the 96th most populous area in the United States. Hmm. So Harrisburg. Um, it looks beautiful. And mm. I would love to go, mostly because Donna's there, and I'd love to see her I again. I know, absolutely. Yeah, she was amazing. Um, so Donna talked a bit about... So one of the things that I loved most about our conversation with her is that she had this... I, I loved when she was describing how she would eat with her family late at night and just because, you know, it was about them spending time together and making food and making sure they could be together even if she finished work late. And I loved how she said that sometimes she'd just sneak down the stairs and make herself pasta in the middle of the night. I <laughs> yeah. love that. It's so earnest and yes. it's so, like, gutsy and, like, Anything goes. present. And I one of the greatest things about Donna was she was really able to be present in her feelings mm-hmm. and uh, get – and be in her grief and be in her joy she was really like an authentic person yes and when she talked about going to eat spaghetti al olio um i loved that i could almost like smell it and taste it mm-hmm. as she was describing that and she really lit up what you couldn't tell is when she was talking about that you know she really like lit up mm-hmm. um so spaghetti al olio for anyone who doesn't know is just really spaghetti with oil and garlic and it's one of life's most simple and delicious pleasures mm-hmm. and she had also mentioned the pasta shape that looks like her beautiful curly hair which is uh fusilli longi uh which just means like a long fusilli and it's delicious and you guys could totally try it with any kind of mm-hmm. nice ragu and donna also wanted us to mention something we had some Really interesting, very honest conversation. And at one point during the conversation, she mentioned, you know, she was talking about 
her husband and she wanted us to say that she after the show she pulled us aside and was like please mention if I didn't do a good job enough of talking about it that I love my husband and he's an amazing person and an amazing partner and um, so we wanted to communicate that for her on behalf of her and and her husband yes yeah so we really hope that you enjoyed our conversation with Donna as much as we enjoyed sitting with her and I know it was a heavy episode it was really intense and we really just want to extend our appreciation again to her for being generous with her time and her vulnerability and again depth and heart make the most difficult conversations you know, so much easier to handle. Yeah. Don't forget to send us your listener letters. And if you are interested in being guest on Processing, to processing at heritageradionetwork.org. And please support Heritage Radio. And thanks for listening. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at Processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.